0: Hello friends, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Nelson Mandela was an international freedom fighter with courage, integrity, and devotion to freedom and justice for all. In this episode, it's an honor to welcome Richard Stengel, who is a friend and a former president of the National Constitution Center, and he's here to discuss his wonderful new podcast, Mandela, The Lost Tapes, which is available on Audible.
1: Rick, it is wonderful to welcome you to We The People. Jeffrey, great to be here with you. Um, I wish I was there with you in Philadelphia.
0: That would be wonderful, and I'm so looking forward to our conversation. It's just amazing that you've collected these audio tapes. they would never been heard before from your years of conversations with Nelson Mandela. You collaborated with him on this incredible memoir, Long Walk to Freedom. I thought we'd start with a clip from your podcast about his early life. This was after the death of his father, when uh, Mandela's mother sent him away from his hometown village to become the adopted son of the king of the Thembu.
1: Mandela was quiet. He observed how the regent carried himself, how he dressed, how he led his people. Sometimes he attended council meetings. He noticed that the regent would listen and nod as one person after another spoke. Only at the end would he rise to speak, and it was then to summarize what others had said and try to find some consensus. It was here that Mandela first learned of African history. Tembu and Khoza heroes, who had fought for freedom in the previous century, during the century-long Kozo wars and rebellion. He identified with them.
2: The counselors came to try cases, settle disputes. Then uh, some days, they would finish very early with trials, and then uh, remain conversing. And I liked those moments, because you would gain a lot uh, and uh, I used to be amongst them uh, and listen to their stories. And, of course, uh, they would send me to go and get fire for them mm. to tell the women that they want tea, uh, that
0: type of thing. Rick, tell us about that clip. What, is it, what does it tell us about Mandela's early life?
1: So, M- Mandela's early life was so important to who he was. I mean, the child is the father of the man, as Wordsworth said. But what we forget is that he was an African aristocrat. He was the son of a chief when his father died, probably of tuberculosis when he was 12 years old. He was raised by the king of the Tembu. He was a member of the Tembu community. His father had arranged for that to happen. And in some ways that was... His life opening up—it uh, was like Shangri-La to him. I mean, it would look, you know, not very impressive to us today: no paved roads, no electricity, no running water. Uh, but Imquazeni, as it was called, the great place, was the the seat of uh, of the Tembu community, and he was raised by the king and the queen as though uh, he was one of their children. In fact, uh, his best friend was their son, Justice. And one of the things that's hard to remember is in, a, in, a, in an apartheid society like South Africa and an oppressive white extremist society, uh, a lot of people who were raised under that who were people of color, uh, were, were raised under this oppressive system. But he was raised in the Transkai, an area that the British never conquered for the most part. And it was an all-black world. I mean, he, he was raised and imbued with the history of the Tembu community, the history of African kings in the 15th and 16th century. He knew those stories. He knew those names. He never had that sort of built-in sense of insecurity and inferiority that that authoritarian white system tried to impose. So um, this gave him confidence, confidence in himself, confidence in his worldview. And it really made him something that, that he was more than anything else, which was an Africanist. He was an African nationalist. That's what animated him from a young boy to all the years he was in prison and to his years as president of South Africa.
0: Wow, so important to
1: learn about that Africanist influence. Tell
0: us more about his education. He finished his BA at the University of South Africa. Uh, he studied for an LLB at the University of Sand. Uh Tell us what he learned and who his intellectual influences were.
1: So he did have this very elite, exclusive upbringing as the, the charge uh, of a king, the son of a chief, Uh, He was sent away to a boarding school uh, as a young man. There's a wonderful picture of him where the king took him to have his first suit made, uh, and he's looking uh, very dapper in it. Um, And his education was important because he was raised to be, and this is his phrase, a black Englishman. He went to these British-style boarding schools taught by English teachers. in this Victorian sensibility. I mean, these were people, his his teachers in his boarding school were alive when Dickens was alive. And and so he had this kind of Victorian colonial education and he aspired in some ways to be a black Englishman. One of his aspirations as a young man was to be a, a translator at the Bunga, which was this all-African parliamentary system in the trans sky. So he had this exclusive... Uh, education, And then he went to high school at a place called Fort Hare, which was uh, the African boarding school for young uh, aristocratic African men from all across the continent. And he met other uh, boys uh, his same age uh, from all across Africa. It was a huge uh, change in sensibility for him. And then when he ran away to Johannesburg, uh, which was because his, the king decided to arrange a marriage for him and justice, and th- neither of them wanted to marry the girls that they were arranged to marry. He escaped to Johannesburg and he became the first black law student at the University of Wieswatersrand, where he really struggled uh, because the, the main legal professor said that no, black student was capable of understanding the law and, and passing the exams that were necessary to become a lawyer. And so that was a very pivotal moment for him, in part because uh, he, he experienced the prejudice that all around him in Johannesburg, but he also met these other young men uh, who became his loyal comrades, uh, uh, Joe Slovo. Uh, uh, George Bezos, who were other law students at the time. Uh, So that was a very um, impressionable time for him, and uh, it wasn't an easy time for him at all.
0: What happened after he graduated from law school? And and tell us about his early political influences, including uh, ZK Matthews, who studied in the United States, and how they influenced his early freedom struggle.
1: Yes, yeah, so the South African bar you had to be apprenticed to a law firm and and he apprenticed himself to a uh, to a law firm um, and then he started with Oliver Tambo, his great friend and colleague, the first uh black law firm in South Africa, Mandela, and tambo and they took all kinds of cases, including um civil rights cases and It was at that time when he was practicing in Johannesburg that he became a member of the ANC, the African National Congress, the, the biggest influence on his life, I, I would say. And he became a member of the Youth League, which were these kind of young, uh, crusading uh, black men who felt the African National Congress had to become more progressive, uh, more dynamic. Uh, he met Walter Sisulu, his great comrade. And, and, At the time I was working on Long Walk, I also interviewed some of his comrades, including Walter Sisulu, who was a truly great man and spent all 27 years in prison with him. And Walter talked about the day that he met the young Nelson Mandela. And he said, the ANC wanted to be a mass movement and then one day, a mass leader walked into my office. And he talked about that impression that Mandela first made. He, he's six foot two inches tall. He's handsome. He's, he's magnetic. He had this brilliant smile. You know, Walter just said, he's, he someday will be the leader of our movement. And he was right.
0: Mandela was influenced to embrace, of course, his philosophy of nonviolence. Which uh, leaders influenced him there and how did he practice it?
1: Well, uh, he did embrace nonviolence and then he eventually renounced it. So, so the ANC was formed in 1912. It's the oldest African liberation movement in, on the continent. And it was formed explicitly uh, as a nonviolent uh, institution. It was formed by lots of, um, of religious figures, And uh, it always practiced nonviolence, but it became a sort of a sleepy organization. And, you know, in the early 1960s, the ANC would have peaceful protests and then the government would respond with violence.
2: Police of the white minority government opened fire on several thousand members of the non-white majority. They had been demonstrating against the racial discrimination apartheid laws.
1: The South African security forces killed scores of black protesters. 180 were
2: wounded. 69 men, women, and children were killed.
1: The shooting became known as the Sharpeville Massacre. The atrocity created headlines around the world. And Mandela was looking at, at nonviolent protest at, and deciding, well, this isn't working. In one of the episodes of, of Mandela, The Lost Tapes, you hear him say, for... Mahatma Gandhi, who of course, campaigned uh, for freedom in South Africa for 20 years for Indians uh, and believed in nonviolence as an inviolate principle, Mandela says, I didn't see it as an inviolate principle. I saw it as a tactic, and since it was a tactic, if it wasn't working, I would abandon it, and he did. He led the formation of the armed military wing of the ANC, something called Mkanto um wisiswe, the spear of the nation. And and that is eventually why he you know, was sent to prison for 27 years. He was sentenced to life in prison for treason, for trying to overthrow the state, which is what he was trying to do.
0: Wow. Uh, before we talk about that pivotal trial, which led to his imprisonment, tell us more about those years of struggle. It was a time when he met the love of his life, Winnie, but the government conspired to keep them apart.
1: Yes. So, you know, he had such an incredibly rich life. I mean, for a man who, who was in prison for 27 years, where his life was limited to a tiny, you know, six foot, six foot by four inch cell, uh, he lived many, many lives before he got to prison. So he was, he was a lawyer. He was uh, this revolutionary civil rights leader. He became an underground, uh, you know, revolutionary. And he met Winnie. I'll tell you what happened. When he was, was a successful was lawyer, he, he drove a big American car.
2: To drop a friend of mine. And I was driving along. I saw this woman waiting for a bus. Which was going to Paraguanath Hospital. And I just saw her, you know, I was struck by her beauty. And I passed, and then I forgot about her. Then uh, she came to see Oliver one day in the office uh, with her brothers, and I was introduced to her in
1: the office. That's how I actually met her. Within Really, a few months they they were married, and um, and she was not a, a political figure when he married her. She was only twenty two years old, and yet she be, learned about it. She became radicalized. She became she became a participant in protests, and um, and within two years after their marriage, he was underground, and then he spent most of their marriage in prison. He always said that. He thought she had it harder than he did. She was trying to raise their two daughters. She was harassed by the police. Um, she was put in and out of prison. She spent a year and a half at one time in solitary confinement. I mean, she really was brutalized by the white authorities and it did break her, I think, in a way that, the, that Mandela and his colleagues never were broken. And it was just a tragic, tragic story.
0: Wow. Well, we'll tell us about the events that led to the trial. You you talk about how the South African police stepped up their violent attacks against the protesters. Mandela launches a guerrilla movement. He travels across Africa for military training, but then experiences, as you say, a life-altering betrayal when he returns. What happened?
1: Yes. So uh, episode one begins very dramatically. He's just returned from his trip First across Africa, as you mentioned, where he gets military training and money for for the Umkonto we Sizwe. He goes, he crosses the border, goes down to Durban, and then he's driving back to Johannesburg, summoned back by the ANC. And he was posing as a as a black chauffeur to a, a white member of the ANC who was a a, a wonderful radical communist theater director and. He's on on this road on a Sunday afternoon, and a and a uh, and a Ford V eight pulls them over, and he knew instantly what was happening. It was the South African security police, and as you hear on that first episode, he had a revolver that he was given in Africa, and he had it with him, and he had it in his pants pocket in the seat, and he had to make a decision about whether to use it or not, and. I think he made the right decision not to use it because if he had, we might never have heard of Nelson Mandela. Um, So he puts the gun away and then he's arrested and taken back to Johannesburg and eventually tried for treason in the famous uh, Rivonia trial. Mandela was the face of the trial. We
2: plead not guilty.
1: But Mandela wasn't trying to evade conviction he was determined to use the trial as a platform for his political philosophy and that of the ANC. For Mandela, it was apartheid that was on trial.
2: What, oh, we won a trial. It aroused emotions tremendously.
0: Mm.
2: We made it clear that uh, this was uh, a unique trial. Mm. And we said, it is the government that
1: should be in the talk, not us. The penalty for, for the trial was, was death by hanging. And in this famous last paragraph of the four-hour speech from the doc that he gave. And he says, um, all of my life I have campaigned against white discrimination and against black discrimination. I hope to live uh, free and in peace.
2: But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die.
0: Wow. What more can you tell us about the trial? What what law was he being tried under? And uh, what what happened after he was in prison?
1: So um, in the next episode, you hear uh, him talk about what happened when the, the judge came back 10 days later. Um, and he talks about the judge sort of breathing heavily and they thought, oh my God, we're all gonna get the death penalty. And the judge said, uh, the first thing he said is, I am not giving you the ultimate penalty, but that's my only leniency, and they all got life in prison. This will sound uh, uh, familiar to, to your listeners. I mean, he essentially was, was tried for seditious conspiracy. Um, he had been in an earlier trial for treason, what's called the treason trial, and then they were on trial in, this, in the Ravonia trial for trying to overthrow the government by force. Uh, which again was was punishable by death. He had um, a, a group of wonderful lawyers, um, including uh, the young Arthur Chaskelson, who became the head of the Constitutional Court, the, the the chief justice of the Constitutional Court after Mandela became president. And they all counseled him not to uh, not to confess to trying to overthrow the government. To not Uh, you know, to kind of fudge it a little bit so that he wouldn't get that ultimate penalty. But in our tapes, you hear him say, he said, look, I I, I wasn't going to uh, uh, go light on what I had done. I wanted to explain the reasons why I had done it. I wanted to explain the principles for which I stood. And I wanted to be able to show people that I was willing to take the penalty for what I did. And so he uh, gave this very, very long speech. And the one thing, advice he did take from his lawyers was to make that final sentence conditional, where they said, call the the chief justice, my lord, and say, if needs be, my lord, it is is a result for which I'm prepared to die. Um, And he did take that advice. And I have no idea whether that made a difference or not.
0: Uh, I I have to ask, because we're about to talk about the formation of South African democracy and the South African Constitution. What, what was Mandela tried under British common law of sedition? And, and was that was the death penalty the, the, the punishment?
1: Yes, he was tried under that old um uh South African constitution. I think it was 1961. Um you know, it was a combination of, of British common law, Dutch and Roman law. Um You know, it was a a very sort of a primitive legal system. Um, And in fact, I, I believe that it was his own experience of racism and racial prejudice and injustice that made him, that radicalized him because he had been taught, you know, this idea of British fair play from when he was a young boy. And then when he came to Johannesburg and he was, Treated as a subhuman, you know, uh, you know, spat upon, uh, every, you know, victim of every racial slight you can imagine. It, he just he said, "My God, if I, if I, Nelson Mandela, the son of a chief with this elite upbringing, is treated like this, what about my my brothers and sisters?" Uh, and and that is what changed him. That is what set him on on this course uh, as one of the greatest democratic freedom fighters in human history.
0: So it really was uh, an impulse for liberty and a demand that the ideals of the law be a reality. Well, let's talk now about the transition to South African democracy. Uh, We're going to begin with a clip of Nelson Mandela describing conversations with uh, de Klerk, the, the president of South Africa, while Mandela was still in prison uh, and right, right before he was released, um, where De Klerk keeps talking about group
1: rights. What I wanted to ask you is to get some of the detail behind your first meeting with De Klerk.
2: The central issue which we discussed was uh, their five-year plan, which they had published, which contained uh, the concept of group rights that uh, group rights uh, should be protected in any future dispensation and that uh, that is how peace would be achieved. I told him that uh, I totally rejected that, that uh, the concept of group rights was uh, giving a, a wrong image of the policy of the National Party because it was conceived as an attempt to bring uh, apartheid through the door.
0: Why, why did the whites uh, at that time keep talking about group rights, and what was Mandela's response?
1: Yes, yeah, so um, when I was working with him in, in 93 and 94, he was involved in these constitutional no- negotiations that would, would become the interim constitution, uh, the acronym for the talks were the Codisa talks. And it was frustrating to him, um, but he was patient. And the reason de Klerk, who was the head of the Nationalist Party, the president of South Africa, uh, was talking about group rights is because whites were, were a minority who were oppressing a majority. And so it sounds funny to American ears to have this white minority that's oppressing a majority but they constantly talk about protecting minority rights. To American ears, that sounds like, oh, you're trying to protect the rights of people of color uh, and, and, and minorities who are oppressed by the majority. No. In South Africa, the majority was, impressed, was oppressed by the minority, and the Nationalist Party constantly talked about, oh, group rights have to be protected because they were afraid of what the, in Afrikaans they called the Svartgafar, the black threat, that you know, the black majority population would wreak vengeance on them. And, and so their idea of group rights was that they were, that, that groups would be protected and that they never wanted majority rule. I mean, they negotiated in the beginning that, that it would be the collection of these individual racial groups, blacks, whites, what were known in South Africa as colored people or now so-called color, uh, Indian people. And they, so that each group would have wouldn't be able to dominate the other. But of course to the ANC and Mandela, they wanted majority rule. That was much more democrat democratic with a small d and that's eventually what happened.
0: Mandela's released from prison in 1990 uh, after 5 years of negotiation he becomes the first democratically elected president of South Africa and What were the challenges during that period of transition from autocracy to democracy?
1: Well, Jeff, in a way, that in some ways was the biggest and hardest transition. Countries really struggle going from uh, autocracy to democracy, and you even see that in South Africa now. But just to take us back a little bit, I mean, he and I were working together while they were writing the interim constitution while they were preparing for that first democratic election in which he was running for president. And so the thing that he was actually most worried about was a possibility of a a catastrophic racial civil war. While that election campaign was going on, there was uh, riots of violence, um, tsunamis of violence from this extremist right wing, white groups that were known as the third force, what, what, what in the press was called the third force and Mandela called the third force. And he believed they were trying to catapult the country into a racial civil war, avoid the election in which black majority rule would happen. And, and so he was conducting one of the most extraordinary balancing acts in history, You know, running for office at the same time trying to prevent a civil war and then, you know, doing a bunch of other things that he didn't need to do, like working on his autobiography with me. Um, so that's what he was most worried about. And, and yet, when the election happened and when he was campaigning, he famously, you know, told people to forget the past, as he said, uh, that he wanted a politics of forgiveness, of a, of a non-racial... South Africa uh, where no group dominated another, even though the bl- blacks would have a majority and they did win a majority, and he felt that was necessary to get the white buy- in to this new uh, democratic republic that never had existed in South African history before and and he, he never showed any bitterness, he never showed any grievance, he never showed any desire for vengeance and that, that was one of the reasons i think that they avoided that potentially bloody civil war because people accepted him as a leader of all south africans white and black
0: what were the principles that mandela put in the constitution to avoid civil war
1: well it's a you know it's a very modern progressive uh constitution and 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 some of the terminology is different to American ears. Uh, it wanted to enshrine what he called, and the Constitution calls, non-racialism. Uh, it, it, he wanted to enshrine non-sexism. This idea that, that, just, that society was a, had a kind of radical equality, uh, that no one was superior, nobody was inferior. Um, they enshrined all of the modern civil liberties that we know. Um, uh They enshrined gay rights and gay marriage you know long before we did in the United states um, and they created a kind of a a, 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 a a federalized republic with a with a less strong central government than than their old system separation of powers um, a bicameral parliament um, it's a very modern constitution um, and they you know in some ways, it's really based as most modern democratic constitutions are on our constitution but they they look to the to the you know Germany's constitution and the Canadian Constitution um, and it's that seems to be working pretty well so
0: interesting you were uh, talking to Mandela one day and he asked you how you would define federalism. Tell us about that conversation
1: yes yeah, so um this was long before I, was, I had your job, Jeff, and I, 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 where after that I could probably define federalism better, but one day we were out walking in the trans sky. So he, we used to go down to this area where he was born and raised, and he had this little house that he lived in there that he built, which was actually based on the last house he lived in when he was in Victor Verstere prison. And he was a super early riser, like 4 or 4.30, and we would go for these long walks um, at, you know beginning at four thirty or five am, and one day he turned to me and he said, "How would you define federalism and And I knew because I'd been reading about what was going on in the in the constitutional negotiations uh, at the time, and he didn't he was never comfortable talking about what was going on in the news. He just, he just was very close to the vest about everything. So wh- I knew what was going on was the fact that there, was, uh, there were kind of nine traditional provinces in South Africa, and those provinces wanted to have more independence and more rights. And I, I said to him, the way I saw federalism in the South African con- uh, con- context was that um, these provinces would be like American states. Uh, each of whom have two senators, each of whom have uh, uh, independence within the constraints of the federal constitution to make decisions for themselves. And that seemed to be a system that would work well in South Africa. And that's eventually what di- did happen. Not, not because that's the way I defined it, but I think because people all realized that made the most sense
0: you said also that the executive branch was less strong than it had been under the previous system in order to separate and check powers uh, tell us more about how the constitution did that and, and how it worked out
1: you know that that's just in sort of my 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 post uh, after the fact, re- reading of the case, that they didn't want to have a as strong a president as existed under the the old apartheid system, which was which of course was an authoritarian system that had a kind of a, a fake constitution, and so um, they wanted to have more power in these two legislative uh, branches, uh, parliament, which I think had four hundred members. Um, and a Senate that had, I think, about 100 members. So um, there was more devolved power. Um, I think, unfortunately, what we've seen um, since then, particularly under the regime of of Jacob Zuma, who was an ANC president who was famously corrupt and, and a man who had a lot of authoritarian tendencies himself? Is that over the years that the system has seemed at best more power in the executive? The executive um, has commanded more power, and um, you know it sways back and forth like our own system does in that respect.
0: Um, well, it will be fascinating to ask you about how the Constitution is operating today, and I, I'll uh, let's do that now and and uh, introduce that with a clip.
1: I spent so much time looking for complexity and nuance in Mandela. I asked so many questions trying to find hidden depths. I was constantly trying to discover internal struggles and conflicts. Maybe they weren't there. When I first read what she said, I thought, that is the secret. It's not that he doesn't have depth or an inner life. It's that he doesn't have inner conflict. He has a kind of radical simplicity about him. A simplicity refined even more by all those years in prison. His thinking is complex, but his character is not. Prison was like the refining process of a metal; It just made him pure.
0: Rick, tell us more about that remarkable assessment you made of of Mandela's legacy.
1: Yes, well... You know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about him and, of course, writing about him. And when I was a younger man working on Long Walk to Freedom, when I made those tapes, I was 36 and 37 years old. And, and you know, I was sort of imbued with the 19th century idea of the great man theory of history. And I had an opportunity to work with a truly great man. And how, how I wanted to try to understand him, to understand his motivation of what made... A person great. And um, I was looking for, you know, maybe it was projection. You know, I was kind of, uh, uh, you know, looking for the same conflicts that I might have had. And he was, he was opaque in some ways. Remember, he'd spent all these years in prison trying to protect what was personal and intimate about him from the authorities where he had no privacy. Um, The only thing that he had was Self-control and self-discipline, so he didn't reveal things that easily. And I think I mentioned only when I'd read this interview with Grasse Michelle, his third wife and his widow, who whom he adored and, and she adored him. Where he, where she said, you know, he's really quite simple. And 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 I think she meant that in the sense that. He knew his own mind, he knew what he liked and he knew what he didn't like. He had this one overarching goal: freedom and democracy for his people, and everything. and I mean, everything was subordinate to that. I mean, that's pretty darn clear, and you know, I'd love to have you know that that simple a vision, and I think other than that, he had you know. He had the kind of normal desires for happiness and pleasures. I mean, he loved being around children, something he'd missed for all these years. I mean, he loved he loved gardening. You know, he gar- learned to garden in prison, and he kept gardening when he came out of prison. I mean, he missed all of these sort of simple pleasures that we're all lucky to have in in a democratic system. So, um, I, I think Grasse was right, and I and I think. Um, the other key thing about him was that he wasn't disabled by the past or disabled by what happened to him. Um, you know, he has that lovely line where he says, Well, I just keep moving on. And it's not like he wasn't introspective or didn't think about the past, but it didn't hobble him, it didn't slow him down. He wasn't crippled by it. And that is an incredible blessing.
0: Mm. Such interesting insights about his, his self-control and, and how that was the main thing that he really could call his own, his devotion to freedom and democracy for his people and his refusal to be hobbled by the past. Um, what was he like as president and how did he function under the new constitution that he helped to create?
1: So he, um, yes, he eventually, the, the, the new uh, parliament voted on that. That new constitution, while he was in office, uh, he became the first democratically elected president of South africa um, and he was never a micromanager. I mean he understood that his role was in some ways symbolic. I mean he got involved in issues, he was involved in you know uh, in uh, creating a defense force he was involved in in standing up a, a justice system he was involved in foreign policy trying to uh, settle um, uh, disagreements across the African continent as a negotiator, um, but in some ways, the single most important decision he made as president was not to run for re-election. And um, it's very similar in a way in, in, in the United States, where when George Washington became our first president, and there were no term limits then, and he decided after running for a second term that he would stand down. He could have kept running for president for the rest of his life. He could have been president for life, as you know, which many people even at the Constitutional Convention wanted to enshrine. Um, But Mandela said, I don't wanna be an octogenarian president, but more importantly, he wanted to set an example on the continent where where in the post-colonial era, there were many, many strong men who became president and then never left office. He wanted to set an example for the rest of Africa to voluntarily and willingly relinquish power. And I think that was a a very, very powerful symbol.
0: So interesting. And and as you say, that was Washington's most important legacy as well. Well, um, how is the constitution operating today? The current president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, was the main negotiator at the time the Constitution was drafted. Uh, he's the president of South Africa. How's, how's he doing and how's the Constitution doing?
1: So I, um, I knew Cyril quite well in those days when I was working with him. He was then the fiery head of the National Union of Mine Workers. Um, and he was a powerful upstanding leader. And I think he was Mandela's personal choice to succeed him. Mandela was overruled and, um, and his successor became Thabo Mbeki, who ironically was the son of one of his ANC colleagues who was with him in prison, Govan Mbeki. And um, I think he may have been the one colleague that Mandela ever said anything Anything unpleasant about he? He wasn't a big fan of of Govan, um, and then his Govan son succeeded him. Um, he felt that Cyril would be a better president because he understood what was going on on the ground in South Africa. He had never become an exile like Tabo did. Um, but then, when Tabo became president, Cyril left politics for many many years, uh, uh, became a very successful businessman, and then. Following the corruption of the Zuma regime, people thought we need to get Cyril back in here. He should be incorruptible. Um, In fact, also ironically, he's facing a a corruption scandal of his own now uh, where uh, he had sold uh, some cattle and uh, he's accused of taking the cash and not uh, declaring it. Um, I have no idea whether it's true. I think Cyril has been a, a strong leader in difficult uh, circumstance because the ANC uh, was so divided when he took power, there was indeed so much corruption and um, he's just been ratified for a second term. You know, the, the Constitutional court has been strong in uh, trying cases of, of corruption. You know, the court itself has been, one of the few institutions that seems to be incorruptible in South Africa. But it's, it's a very um, difficult time there. And, um, and I think they have to overcome this corruption. They have to enfranchise more people. It's still, in terms of economic inequity, it may be even greater now than it was under apartheid. So they have some gigantic challenges.
0: What would Mandela make of the charges of corruption uh, in the ANC today?
1: Well, I I think he would say something we touched on before, and, and you mentioned in one of your questions, that the transition from an authoritarian government to a democratic state is very, very tough. And there haven't been that many examples of an overnight transition like happened in South Africa. Yes, there was this period leading up to it and there was a temporary uh, constitution, but literally in that one vote in 1994, it went from a a non-democratic system where only white people could vote to a truly democratic system with universal suffrage for, for all people. And so the struggle is that you become a democratic state, but you don't have any democratic institutions. It didn't really have a a democratic judiciary. Uh, It didn't have a functioning kind of foreign office. Uh, It didn't have a justice department. All of these institutions that we take for granted, as you know, are are decades and even centuries old. And so uh, they had to kind of build the plane and fly it at the same time. I think that's one of the reasons for the amount of corruption. They they looked at that old nationalist party and that authoritarian rule, which was corrupt, where virtually every person uh, in the civil service was a friend or a relative of somebody in government. And they thought, well, that's how you do it. And they didn't have the democratic institutions that that said, hey, these are democratic norms and you have to follow them. And I think that's one of the reasons there was so much corruption. And Mandela would say, I think he would say all that I said and that and that they didn't have systems that, that would regulate it. And that was the biggest challenge to create those institutions that would become safeguards of the democracy. So I think he would be very, very dismayed by the amount of corruption. Uh, but I I think he would see it as a, as a problem to be overcome, not something that uh, was a reason to doubt democracy or even doubt the ANC.
0: And what would uh, Nelson Mandela think about South African democracy today? It was a one party state. Uh, The ANC won two thirds of the vote in the first election, but that percentage has been going down ever since. Um, Is it democratic or not? And what would Mandela think of it?
1: It is democratic in, in in the basic sense. I mean, when I first went there in the 1980s, I mean, it was an incredibly oppressive, authoritarian state. I mean, I even, as a young journalist, when I was there, I was followed around by security police. Um, it's just hard to imagine what that was like. It's like all of the, uh, you know, the things we read about what the Soviet Union was like in the, in the bad old days. And... Uh, and today it is one person, one vote. There's a representative uh, legislature. The the provinces have powers. Uh, it's a functioning democracy, um, and I think they take for granted the fact that it's a functioning democracy. But they wish it was functioning better. Um, I, I think that's the that is the the thing that he would say needs to be done, which is to try to improve how it works from a governance perspective. That's not something he ever had experience with, but it needs people who are uh, kind of uh, professional, um, political leaders who who know how to govern. And, and, you know, they're still kind of far from that. And what you also have is that the ANC did for those first, you know, 20 years or so governed like a one-party state, which they effectively were, had about two-thirds of the votes, two-thirds of the the legislature. As you mentioned, the ANC now is probably going to get under 50% of the vote. I actually think uh, a more vibrant, multi-party democracy would be good for South Africa. It would force the ANC to evolve and progress. And, you know, there are some you know impressive young leaders from all across the the spectrum in south africa and i think i just think we're seeing what happens uh in the early days of a of a democratic state
0: what were mandela's views about america and the american presidents that he interacted with
1: so one of the interesting things was that i discovered that he didn't actually know that much about america and I think the fact that I was American was both a blessing and a curse to the project. I mean, I was a kind of a curiosity for him, so I became a kind of a a symbol of all America. Um, I remember once waiting for him to take off on a plane, uh, and I was wearing a suit, and he smiled at me and he said, ah, you look like a superpower today. Um, And he, he told some funny stories about what he knew about America from growing up. He, he was an amateur boxer and he knew Joe Lewis. Uh, he had been in a play uh, about Abraham Lincoln in high school and he was cast as John Wilkes Booth. Uh, he said he wanted to play Lincoln, but there was one kid who was taller than him and he got the part. Um, he actually didn't know that much about American history. He was an Anglophile. He had really been... been uh, educated in, in English tradition, English history, uh, English literature. And um, while he admired America, he also talked about the fact that when he was a revolutionary, when he was raising money for the ANC in the 1950s and 60s, he was considered a terrorist by, uh, by the CIA and the FBI. He was turned down for funds by the uh, American government uh, the CIA in all likelihood tipped off the South African police as to his whereabouts, you know, when he was arrested. He had mixed feelings about America and certainly mixed feelings about colonialism. And, um, uh, and so he was um, respectful. Uh, he loved the, the way he was treated and revered by Americans, but um, he wasn't an Americanophile by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Rick this has been a wonderful conversation and it's it's so great to share your light and wisdom with we the people listeners y- you returned to these tapes which you call the lost tapes uh years after they were made that they, they were originally made in the in the course of the memoir that you wrote with Mandela that helped to cement his international reputation they were laid aside for many years and then you came back to them and in, in uh when consulting on a documentary about South Africa years later and put them together as this great podcast series. Listening to them again and revisiting those moments, what what did you learn about Mandela that perhaps you'd forgotten?
1: So as you know, Jeff, the tapes were never really lost. I I had them for many years. Um, I gave them to the Nelson Mandela Foundation in Johannesburg, a really wonderful uh, organization uh, that actually is the is the custodian of all of, of Mandela's papers, um, and including the tapes. Um, but as you say, I had actually never I'd actually never listened to them at all, uh, because at, back in ninety two and ninety three, I had the tapes transcribed in real time, and when I started working on the book, I just worked from the transcription. So uh, it really was just a revelation to hear them again. I mean, it was so powerful to be back in that room with him alone, hearing his voice. And it's also powerful and disconcerting to hear your own voice 30 years earlier. And, um, you know, one of the strange things about listening to it is that I, and I don't know, it's like a kind of a parlor trick. I could remember what I was thinking when I heard my voice asking those questions. And I could, when when he wasn't giving the answer I wanted, I could remember what I thought at the time. And then I could hear the next question I asked and remember, you know, why I asked that question. It was really kind of wonderful and uncanny um, to be in touch with my younger self. And, um, you know, it was also an extraordinary time because, I met my wife during that time. She was a South African photographer. So it took me back to to that to that period in my life. And and you know, the important thing for me is really that other people can have this same extraordinary, life-changing experience that I had, to be alone with a with a truly great man, to hear him speak personally and intimately about what animated him, what motivated him, what he believed in. Um, and hear it in a kind of informal way. It's just a an inc- ringside seat to history. And it helps me feel like I'm paying him back for all the wonderful changes uh, he made in my life, not to mention the changes he made in the lives of millions of other people.
0: It is indeed a ringside seat to history. And I'm so grateful to you, Rick Stengel, for sharing it with We The People listeners. Um, it's an honor to, follow you uh, at the National Constitution Center. And it's wonderful to welcome you back to the family to talk about the legacy of the great
1: Nelson Mandela.
0: Rick, thank you so much.
1: Jeffrey, thank you so much. And you have finally discovered how to actually properly run the National Constitution Center. So my hat is off to you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that, Rick. Talk soon. Today's show was produced by Lana Ulrich and Bill Pollack, who was engineered by Dave Stotts. Research was provided by Emily Campbell, Sophia Gardell, Liam Kerr, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional education and debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of lifelong learning and constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.